Okay, 2,000 years ago, there were Christians uh, in a Greek city called Colossae, and they were wondering the exact same question, what's our place? What's our place in life? You see, they had just converted from paganism and from Judaism, and back then, the religion that you put on, the religion that you wore, it determined a lot about you. It gave you access to financial resources, business resources, to food. It gave you the network you needed to be able to live. And so while these new Christians were so excited, they couldn't believe that Jesus had chosen them, they also were terrified because they were putting on a new religion. They were leaving behind these old networks and they're wondering, how am I going to make it? Without all those resources, how am I going to live? You know, maybe here at Mizzou, becoming a Christian doesn't mean losing your life. But maybe, you know, it does mean some form of social exclusion. And maybe that's something you've experienced. You know, maybe it's what happens when you're sitting there with your roommates and they're telling you you're taking this Christianity thing a little bit too seriously. You're getting weird. Maybe it's what we experience when they're all going out on Friday night and we don't know who to call. And it's like, well, am I going to sit at home alone? Or am I going to go to Harpo's and make the same mistake I made last weekend? For others of us, maybe we put on Christianity a long time ago. But we still feel a sense of exclusion. We think if people saw what was going through my head, if they knew what I really believed, they'd think I was weird. They think I was crazy. You feel out of step at Mizzou. You feel maybe like you don't belong. It's a painful reality, but it's a real one. One that if you haven't faced, you probably will face. Following Jesus means that we will often experience exclusion. The Apostle Paul was a guy who kind of specialized in caring for these converted pagans and Jews. And he wrote a letter to these Christians in Colossae. And he's writing a letter to these people who were excluded as a result of putting on Christianity. And in his letter, he tells them an incredible truth. He says, because God has chosen all of you for his team, you've now been enabled to put on a new look that is designed precisely to destroy exclusion. Read with me from Colossians 3, verses 12 and 14. Put on them. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the first thing that we learn here is that because God has chosen us for his team, we put on love. In verse 12, Paul unveils this really incredible reality. He tells these Colossians, he says, you are God's chosen ones. Now just step back for a second. Think for a moment how that hits the ears of someone who feels excluded on the outside. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what they heard? People who were fearful and excluded, they heard, you're not out, you're not excluded, you've been chosen. I think about myself in this. Um, I am, as long as I'm talking about being a loner and whatever else, I'm horrendously unathletic. That's another little thing that I have to deal with in life. I'm, I'm just bad at sports, okay? It's a reality. You don't want me on your volleyball team unless you want to have fun. Um, and as a result, I am always picked last. It's just, I've accepted it. It's true. I'm going to get picked last. But God says to those who get picked last, people who feel at times like I've been picked last in life, He says, you're not picked last. 
You're on my team. I've chosen you. You're not my last pick. You're my first pick. I've chosen you. You're my beloved. And because we're chosen, we're also holy. And when I say holy, I don't mean being some sort of super saint, okay? The word holy just means set apart for a purpose. And the purpose that we've been chosen for, that we've been set apart for, is to put on love. It's to put on a new outfit. And this outfit of love, Paul says, has all these different little parts to it. So let's read about the different parts of love. He says, put on then, this is verse 12, compassionate hearts, kindness. These are all the different parts of the the love outfit, okay? Humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, uh, I know that I'm not supposed to wear navy with black, right? That's like a color rule you're not supposed to do, right? And what Paul is saying here is you're not supposed to wear anything that doesn't match with love. Whatever you put on, whatever is in your life, match it to love. As God's chosen team, that's what we're called to do. And this is incredible news for people who feel excluded. You know why? Because an environment of love has the power, when everybody's putting on stuff that matches with love, to destroy exclusion. You see, I know here at Veritas, it's full of people who feel excluded at times. Maybe that's you, and you feel it You know, on Friday night when you don't know who to text. Maybe you feel it when you want to talk to someone and you don't know who to call. Uh, We need to put on love for these friends. You see, the problem facing a lot of us, maybe like, yeah, it's not me. I don't really feel excluded. I know my place. The problem for many of us is comfort. We put on whatever's easiest for us, whatever's the least demanding, right? But notice what Paul does here. He doesn't call us to put on comfort. He calls us to put on patience for other people's needs. He calls us to bear with one another. Put on burdens. Don't put on comfort. For me, the problem is often fear and insecurity. You see, I kind of have this deep down feeling that I need to watch out for me first. Because no one else is going to watch out for me. No one else is out there taking care of me. And so I got to think about me first before I think about loving others. And so I put on a me first attitude. But Paul calls us to put on humility and others first attitude. I want to put on my wants and my desires, but Paul calls us to put on compassionate hearts towards the hurts and the exclusion others are experiencing. I want to put on frustration because you're taking up too much of my time and too much of my effort. But Paul calls us to put on meekness, which means gentleness not frustration, gentleness. See, if you're like me, I'm prone to put on my own desires, my own needs. I'm prone to put on me because I'm scared. This is why Paul starts off this uh, verse with the promise that we are God's chosen and beloved. You see, we can only put off me when we know deep down that someone else is out there who's watching out for me. Someone else is out there who cares for me. I don't have to worry about putting on me because guess what? God sent his son to die for me. And if he's willing to do that, I don't have to be nervous about whether or not he can provide for me and my needs. That frees me to put on love 
to reach out to others who are excluded. For those of us who are maybe established here at Veritas, this means we have to take the responsibility upon ourselves to seek out, actually seek out, look, open up our eyes, find people who feel excluded. Because most people are going to raise their hand and say, hey, I'd like to hang out. Maybe that means for you, you need to take the lead in your group of friends. Maybe that means you get all your friends together, you meet up, and you say, hey, what can we do this semester? Really practical steps to try and invite in two or three new people into our group. To put on love together as a group. Bring people in. God has chosen us for his team. And as a result, we've been enabled to put on love together. The kind of love that destroys exclusion. Now, I know that as I speak about what it's like for us in this room to love each other and to care for each other, some of you are wondering on the flip side, does putting on love have implications for the world outside of this room? Well, I think the answer is yes. But you see, the next thing we learn from Paul here is that because God has chosen us, we put on peace for the sake of others. This is what Paul says. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. So as one body, as God's chosen team, we have this group project, and it's peace. And Paul's not talking about peace. He's talking about this ancient Hebrew concept called shalom. And shalom was the idea of the world as it should be. Shalom described a world where there was no evil, where there was no pain, where there is no suffering, where there is No racism, no classism, no poverty, no misogyny, no injustice. A world where people put on radical love for each other and radical love for one another, for God, and purity. So when Paul's saying, let peace reign in your lives, he's not just saying, he's not saying, look, huddle up and love each other. He's saying, let all of our actions, let every word, every deed that we do be ruled and dictated by peace, by whatever is good and true, by whatever brings justice, by whatever brings reconciliation between races and genders and classes. This couldn't be more applicable when we're here, even tonight, hearing about the deep pain of black students on campus. Don't the people who worship the king of peace have something to say and something to do? I know there's some of you here tonight who answer that question. You say, yes, yes, we have something to say. Yes, we have something to do. There's others of you here who have a sense like, yeah, I get that there's something wrong going on, but I'm confused. I don't understand it. I don't know what to do. That's been a camp that I found myself in a lot. And there's still others of you here tonight who are thinking, what's the big deal? This is stupid. I don't need to listen to this. If you're in that second or third camp, you might even be wondering why I'm talking about this at all. Well, in the early church, the Apostle Peter was acting on his own inner ethnocentric racist beliefs, and he was refusing to eat with anybody who was not a Jew. And as a result, Paul, a different apostle, had to come and address him. And Paul tells the story in Galatians, what he had to do as a result of Peter's racism. He says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. When I 
saw that their conduct, Peter's conduct, not eating with non-Jews, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, and he goes on to describe the speech that he gave, rebuking Peter for his racism. You see, Paul spoke out. Because even the most minor acts of racism, they're not in line with the gospel. Even the most minor acts condemn us. I can only beg you tonight to hear me out and to not harden your hearts. I don't pretend to have all of the answers. I know I don't. In fact, I admit that I'm part of the problem. But I think we all have to do this first. We have to take the humble step of listening. If you're in the camp of saying, look, this doesn't matter, I don't understand, let me just ask you the question. Have you listened? If you're wondering, well, why are people so angry? Let me just ask, have you listened? Have you heard? Have you actually sat across the table from someone and said, tell me about your experiences on campus? Because when you do, and maybe you start to hear the stories of deep pain and discrimination, not just experience on our, on our campus, but experience for some people over a lifetime, it might change how you feel. We heard from Marquise already tonight. I was reading the story of another girl on our campus. She said that her freshman year, um, she was told by one white student that she only got into Mizzou because uh, she was black. Her sophomore year, she was told to get out of Greektown to find her own sorority. A different year, a white student put on blackface and went to the Black Student Center to mock her friends. And this isn't to count the countless times, more than she can count on both hands, that she's been called the N-word as she walked around on campus and the psychological fear and stress and anxiety that she experiences wondering, is this going to be the group where they don't just sit in the car, but they get out and they take me and they hurt me? You want to know what happened for her? She turned in every single one. Nothing. If you're white like me, maybe we have to humbly admit that we have no idea what it's like to be in that situation and we need to just start listening. Are you listening? If that was your little sister constantly called names, fearing for her safety and seeing nothing happen, what would you do? How would you feel? If that was your brother, how would you respond? I've seen my own sister experience injustice and hurt, and I can tell you how I responded. I was angry. I was sad. I was hurt. I was disappointed. I felt helpless. I think if we realize that that's not those people, those are our brothers and our sisters, it changes the whole way we see things. Are you listening? The first thing we need to do is listen. The second thing we need to do is we need to repent. You see, racism, it doesn't just cut a line between the good and the evil, the right and the wrong. It cuts a line down every human heart. It cuts it down my heart. And I know that I need to begin by repenting. I repent of the sin of suspicion. The fears and the negative assumptions I make when I walk past a black person on the street. I need to repent of self-righteousness, congratulating myself because I have a successful, happy life and thinking that that other person is lazy and ignoring the fact that I grew up with a glut of opportunity 
I've had a charmed wife. I need to repent of preference. The way that I've spent my time, the way that I've silently and subconsciously preferred whites to blacks. Some of us need to go a step further even. We need to repent of the racial slurs that we've said. We need to repent of the racialized jokes that we said, oh, this doesn't hurt anybody, no one's here, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. We need to repent of the racialized symbols that we're hanging up in our windows and on our cars. I'm sorry, but I just can't imagine. I just can't imagine Jesus saying a racist word, having a racist thought, putting a Confederate flag in his window. I just don't see it. We need to put on love, which means putting other people first. Listen. Repent. The third thing we need to do is we need to speak. If these are our brothers and sisters taking a buy on this, that implicates us. Our silence, our apathetic yes, is a yes to those who are doing wrong. 2,600 years ago, the prophet Amos, he harshly criticizes Israel because they were ignoring the pleas of those who were being hurt. And as a result, God says, I don't even want to hear your worship anymore. This is what he says. He says, take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. There's only one song that God wanted to hear in the midst of injustice. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Proverbs says this, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the needy and the poor. I don't want to be silent anymore and apathetic. We need to speak lest God refuses to hear our worship. When a friend is making a racialized comment or joke, we need to say something. It doesn't need to be mean. It doesn't need to be angry, but it needs to be gracious and true. Why? Why did you say that, man? Let's talk about it. Maybe we shouldn't say that kind of stuff. If you hear someone making an outright racist slur, I know it's awkward. I know it's weird, but we have to be the first people to step up and turn around and say, no, that's wrong. You can't say that kind of thing. We got to stop that. Just before the passage that we're reading tonight, Paul makes this exact same application. He says here in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, he calls the church to be a, thermom- to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. A thermometer just tells the temperature of the world around it. And it's my prayer that Veritas would not just tell the temperature of the racial unrest and anger that's out in our campus right now. Instead, I pray that we would be a thermometer. A thermometer changes the temperature. And I pray that by taking these small steps, we would begin to change the the temperature to shalom, to peace on our campus. These three steps are not going to put an end to the systemic problems facing our university and our country, but they are a necessary step forward for all of us towards becoming a community that is actively putting on the peace of Jesus. So as I'm talking tonight about what it looks like to love one another and what it looks like to bring peace onto this campus, We have to admit we have not arrived. I have not arrived. I'll be the first person to say it. 
And so the question before us is how do we cultivate this kind of culture at Veritas? Well, I think we do it not by just trying really, really hard. That's going to get us nowhere. The only way to do it is to let God cultivate it. And God does this by allowing us to put on new practices. Because God has chosen us for his team, we put on practices that cultivate love and peace. Uh, You might not realize it. Just think about this for a second. Our everyday lives are shaped by regular practices that cultivate peace and love. Uh, I'll give you the the best illustration I have. Football game day, okay? Uh, You might not realize this. I used to live with Kyle. Uh, That was a wonderful year of my life. And he didn't tell me what he did on game day Saturday. So I'm in bed. I'm catching my Z's. It's pretty early in the morning. I'm asleep. And then... As loud as possible, the Mizzou fight song is blaring on the other side of my wall. I mean, I like jump up out of bed, pee a little. I'm like, what's happening? What's happening? I go out and he's marching around the living room. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he goes, this is what I do every game day. (laughs) A little warning next time. That's Kyle's um, practice of game day wake up, right? And we've got a lot of other game day practices, right? Um, we have the practice of putting on our Saturday best, our black and gold, right? We have the practice of holding meals at our tailgates. We have the practice of making a pilgrimage to the stadium. We have a practice of observing uh, our songs and our chants. And we have the practice of watching a game. And in other seasons, we have the practice of celebrating a win. Um, but really, we're... We're creatures of practice. We shape ourselves with regular practices. And there's something inherently spiritual about the practices that are shaping our day-to-day life. They shape a particular kind of character in us. God can cultivate love and peace here by allowing us to put on new practices. And Paul tells us what these love and peace cultivating practices are. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. These are all the practices with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. No matter where you are, what you're doing, have these practices shape what you're doing, giving thanks to him, to God the Father through him. God is enabling us to put on the practices of worship. And not just on Sunday nights, not just on Tuesday nights, but in our everyday lives. So as a group, we've got to ask this question first. What are the practices that are shaping us most today? Is it the practices of the involvement cult, being busy all the time? Is it the practices of the popularity and the party scene? Is it the practices of entertainment, you know, sports center, Netflix? Is it the practices of consumerism, work hard, buy more? Is it the practices of just being chill? having a good time. What would it look like for us then to put on the practices that could cultivate this kind of love and peace? Well, I think individually, obviously this means that we need to have times of prayer and Bible reading as a regular part of our lives. But I want us to notice here that Paul's focus isn't on what I do as an individual. His focus is on what I do, what we do as a group. The first thing he says is to let the word dwell richly. This is why we do small groups here. The point of being in a small group is to go and and with a group of people study God's word and let it dwell in us richly. 
The problem is that for a lot of us, we don't do that faithfully. We're there in body, but we're not there. What's it look like for us to be thankful for our small groups, to come, to show up emotionally, to bring our lives to bear, to actually share what's happening and apply, let the word of God dwell deeply in our lives. If you're not in a small group, maybe think about joining one. If you are, join it. The second thing we can do is we can start admonishing one one another. Admonishing is a weird word. It just means to encourage someone with an edge, with a little cut. So maybe what this means is for you and for your friends is, you know, you, you need to have a time where you get together regularly and you, uh, you, you pray together, you confess together, you encourage one another, and you rebuke and correct one another when you're not living up to love and to peace. The third thing we need to do is group worship. Yet again, Paul says here to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's why you come on Tuesday nights. This is part of your practice that helps shape who you are. But maybe that is also something you can do outside of Tuesday nights with friends. God's put his spirit inside of us to guide us in these group practices. God uses them to train us in putting on love and peace. Here at Veritas, we've been going through God's story this whole semester. And here's the question I have for you. Do you know what part of God's story you're living in right now? I'll tell you what it is. It's the church part of the story. It's the part of the story where Jesus chooses a people for himself, a people to love, a people for him to adore, a people who are chosen and cared for, his first picks. It's a time when he chooses a special team that's holy, set apart for a special purpose, which is to be his kingdom, putting on love and putting on peace and letting it reign in our lives. If you look on the screen, we've got a painting. This is the Zong by William W. Turner, uh, J.M.W. Turner, whatever, none of you guys care about that. Uh, The Zong was a slave ship, and it sunk in the 1750s, killing hundreds of slaves on board, every slave on board. In fact, if you zoom in, we'll go to the next slide. In the painting, he has this terrible and ominous leg that has a shackle on it, kicking out of the water, showing what had happened. And when this happened, and it came back to England, some Christians, they ignored it, but many were incensed. They were horrified. They had no idea. And it led them to start thinking, the only Christ-like response for us to do now is to put on love together and to try to bring peace to the world. And so this group called the Clapham Sect, they got together. There were people like Hannah Moore, a social activist. John Newton, a former slave trader who uh, converted to Christianity, became a pastor, wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, William Wilberforce, a politician who through his work ended the slave trade and slavery in the UK. But for three decades, they did two things. They got together, they huddled up, and they loved each other. And they prayed, and they studied the Bible, and they did those regular practices. And when they were done coming in, they turned back out, and they went outward into the world with peace. They spoke out. They brought change. And as a result, there was a Christian spiritual revival in England. See, those two things, loving each other, being for peace and for change, they're ever intertwined in true Christian spirituality. 
Do you know what story you're living in? I'll tell you what. You can demand the pen. You can say, I'm going to write the story of my life. I don't like what Jesus has to say or what he wants to do. But if you take the pen and you write your story, your story will be as small as you are. Or we can know what it means to be chosen and beloved. We can give Jesus the pen and we can let him write all of us as a group into an unforgettable story that's greater than any one of us could be because it's the story of his kingdom, his power, his glory. The question before us is which story will we put on? May it be the love and the peace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray you would teach us to do it all for you. I pray that you would teach us to put on your love, to put on your peace. I pray that you would challenge us to listen, challenge us to repent, challenge us in our own group to love one another, to take practical steps to invite in the excluded. Jesus, we only do this for you and we can only do this through you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.